You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. When things kind of go crazy and you see the 10% jump or the 10% drop or whatever, I say, okay, so let's not get emotional. I can't make a wise decision right now because there's too much emotional charge in my brain. I've got to take a step back and go through this in a thoughtful manner. It was hard for me to focus because you were just like, holy crap, like somebody could literally shoot around straight through my cockpit into my face. So like your mind is going so wild. I can only imagine what the neurons look like as this was happening. Sometimes financial markets can feel like a battleground. Prices move around in ways you don't expect. The actions of outside forces such as central bankers and politicians cause collateral damage that simply wasn't anticipated and you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time to calamitous effect. But despite how bad things may seem at times, nothing you encounter in your attempts to safely navigate market turbulence can compare to the very material dangers faced in the skies over a war zone. Joining me today is a man who will be familiar to many of you as the co-host of one of the world's most popular finance podcasts, but whose previous life as the commander of an elite squadron of Apache attack helicopters in Afghanistan is a world away from that which he calls home today. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Preston Pish. Also on this week's episode, we celebrate the return of our popular Things I Got Wrong feature when Tim Price of Price Value Partners steps up to the plate and shares the kind of life lesson with us you can only get from making a mistake. I'm Grant Williams and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is October the 5th, 2017 and welcome to episode 36 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, the new king of Twitter, James. How are you, mate? I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm dying for an update. How many Twitter followers do we have now? 79. <laughs> 79 followers. This is... What happened last week? What have you been posting to get you from 15 to 79 in a week? I posted absolutely nothing. Ah, so this is... Your, you've become like a zen Twitter master. Yeah, I, you know, there's all this noise out there in the Twitter, Twitter sphere, you know? I figure I can be a refuge... You can just come to my feed and see the same thing I put last so, week. So the less you post, the more people want to hear from you. I'm counting on it. This could be revolutionary. Well, this you know, could be revolutionary. I'm, I'm the counterculture. 
Yeah, less is more. And now they've given me even more characters to write nothing with. Less is more. Less is more. I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Okay. Less <laughs> is more. Okay. Well, this week we are joined by one of the co-hosts of the Investors Podcast. Alongside Stig Broderson, Preston Pish is a great commentator on markets, a great observer um, of the world around him and a fantastic interviewer. But Preston's career has had a few different twists and turns, which uh, many people out there won't be familiar with. So I've asked him to come on and talk about some of the defining moments in his life. Preston, welcome. Grant, such an honor to be with you guys. I uh, love what you guys do. It's uh, you and I. It's funny. You and I are like buses. We don't speak to each other for ages, and then we come along. We speak to each other like in, with unerring frequency. But this is uh, this is going to be a different kind of a conversation. I hope. Um, you know, on on the second season of uh, Adventures in Finance, we wanted to kind of mix things up a bit and and talk a little bit more personally to people about some of their some of their life stories and and to try and distill from those some of the events and some of the decisions that they've made that kind of turn them into into the investors and the people they are today. And, and to have a, a fellow value, value investor like you on alongside me is just such a treat for me. So I I, I know there's going to be a bunch of people out there that, that have listened to the Investors Podcast, um, but I suspect there will also be a bunch of people that don't actually know about your history prior to to the one the part of your life they know you from. So if you could just give them a, a sort of a backdrop, and then I want to get into some of these defining moments. Um, so before I started the Investors Podcast, um, I was in the military and uh, I used to fly attack helicopters. And so I, I graduated from West Point. I got commissioned as an officer, went, then went off to flight school and uh, then really, uh, you know, was a pilot and, you know, ended up commanding a company in Afghanistan. And then we started the Investors Podcast, uh, you know, about probably 10 years after I had uh, became an officer in the Army. And, uh, yeah, then the podcasting stuff has been uh, awesome. We've been having a lot of fun. I've written a couple books on investing, and so that's kind of the background. Yeah, that, that was that was one of the greatest yada, yada, yadas of all time. You, you realize that? <laughs> George Costanza would have been delighted with that. You know, I, I was flying attack helicopters in Afghanistan, and then I started a podcast. So so I'm going to take you back to that yada, yada, yada piece. and Because and, as I say, what I really I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this second season is, is picking defining moments in people's lives and, and trying to get a sense of, you know, crossroads that came to decisions they had to make uh, and how that maybe changed the course of life or maybe not so as dramatically as that, but it just kind of changed the way they looked about uh, looked on things and thought about stuff. So, you know, I'm sure in your, in your first life there must have been plenty of those moments. I mean, do any of them stand out? Uh, ab- yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the first time I went to Afghanistan uh, was kind of a defining moment for me and I would – I would argue the second time I went to Afghanistan was even more defining. Um, so the first time I, I went over there, I was um, I was on a staff. I was on a division staff and kind of, you know, I was on a big base. I was on Bagram Air Base and um, worked a lot kind of more of like a desk job. And mm-hmm. I, I went out on a few flights, but really didn't fly a lot on the first rotation. So like that was a that was a really interesting experience. But on the second time that I went back for for a second year, I was actually in command of an attack helicopter company. I was in charge of um, all the attack helicopters that flew that supported the whole Kandahar area. So that that was my you know that was the area that I was responsible for as a company commander. And um, 
you know, I also had a, I also had a three aircraft requirement to provide uh, three Apaches to support uh, special forces operations mm-hmm. every single night. And so, um, you know, that experience for an entire year was very defining, uh, very shaping for me, mostly because you just, you look at the world from a completely different lens after going through something like that and seeing, yeah, sure. seeing what you saw. And I guess for me, you know, there's a lot of guys that come back and they have problems after seeing some of that stuff. It actually puts them into a tailspin. Um, you know, my roommate from, uh, from college ended up uh, committing suicide when he came back. Um, and you see guys that just, um, it, I, I can't understand what cognitively takes place in the mind that, that allows some people to come back and not have any issues with the, you know, the, you know, thinking about that stuff and, and consuming their thoughts. And then, uh, other people come back and they have the exact opposite experience and it, it just totally overwhelms them and it ends up destroying their lives. And for me, I was very, very fortunate that I was able to come back and kind of, it, it's not something that I think about at all. I, I don't, I don't know why that is. Is it a conscious thing? Because I think, you know, I, I can't possibly imagine, you know, I've never been in a situation anywhere close to something like that. But you know, I, I always kind of picture it that you either, you either choose to say, okay, this is, this is a glorified video game. I have to kind of think of it in those terms to be able to get through it. Or, or, or is it just a natural, you, that's just, you find your way when you get into, into a situation like that? You know, for us in the air, flying, it, you could see the parallel to like the video game kind of thing because you're, you're very detached. I mean, you're still, I mean, we had guys that had the, the cockpit shot out in, in my company. And I mean, there was some pretty crazy things that happened sure. when we were there. And, but in general, it's much more detached than the guys that we were supporting that were on the ground. And I mean, seeing some of the things that these guys had to go through, I just don't know how you could come back from that and, and really kind of refer to it as the video game type experience. I think from a pilot standpoint, that can be a true statement, but I think yeah. for guys on the ground, it's not, you know, for me, I had so much to come back to. You know, I had a family, I had kids, my wife stood by me through all of this and um, was always there for me, always, always there to talk to. Some of these guys go over there and they maybe aren't on the same footing that, that I was, that I had the luxury to, to be on the footing with my wife and things kind of fall apart when they're away for a year. And when they come back, I think it's, I think guys kind of look at it as, is this experience stole my life from me. And so that's something that, um, I didn't have that happen to me. I was very fortunate and, um, you know, thank God for my wife and everything that all the sacrifices that she's made for me to be able to do what I did. Uh, I think it's the main reason it's been so easy for me to come back and not have to, uh, to think about it or dwell on it too yeah. much. Yeah. Did, did you, now before you, before you went over there, was, was investing something that you'd always done, you'd always been interested in, or, or is that something that developed later on post that career? No, it, it definitely was. It was something that I had been doing since I got out of college. Um, so like my undergrad, it was in aerospace engineering. So I really liked math. Um, and I've kind of gradually shifted more to like I, maybe I prefer writing now a little bit more, which is kind of right. strange. But um, back then, like I just I loved doing math. I loved anything that was quantifiable. And so, whenever I started f- figuring out about Warren Buffett and that he kind of had this 
determine the value of a company and discount cash flows and using math to determine what you think a business is worth, that immediately I was attracted to that. And that was something that uh, made sense to me. So whenever I was, you know, I read security analysis for the first time whenever I was in Afghanistan on my first rotation. That's where I, where I read that book. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was very active in the markets. I, uh, thoroughly enjoyed, uh, investing when I was in Afghanistan and and when I was in the military. Yeah. It's it's, it's such an easy equation to make and I I hate to do it, but equating being, you know, under fire, I mean, it's completely different, but, but the mindset of when you have money invested in the stock market, um, you know, it, it, it feels to me without any experience of a similar kind of mindset, you, you're, you're, you know, you, you've, you've done what you're going to do and the market is going to take shots at you and the market is going to try and knock you off your stride and disrupt you. Did you, did you find, uh, you know, at the time you kind of, as you're investing, you're, you're recalling experiences in that, in that life in, in the military and, and it stood you, I would imagine in pretty good stead. I like this question because I, I, I probably wouldn't have talked about this, but because you asked this, you're exactly right, Grant. So, um, so here's a story. So I'm over in Afghanistan. The very first time that I got in what we call a kinetic engagement where we were actually shooting the aircraft, I remember this as clear as like it happened yesterday. And, um, you know, because it was such a, it was such a profound moment that you, you wonder if that's ever going to happen to you. Uh, when you're training and you're going and you're flying and you're shooting gunnery tables back in the United States and you practice and you practice all this stuff. And you, I guess in the back of my mind, I, I guess I always felt like, ah, I'm learning all this stuff, but I doubt I'll probably ever use it. And sure enough, like I definitely used it. And, um, you know, I remember in Afghanistan, the very first time that I got in a kinetic engagement with, you know, an enemy force and I just remember this feeling in my body where like, you were just like, um, it's really kind of hard to, d- to describe, but your mind is, is kind of going wild. Like, um, inside of my brain, like I could just, it was hard for me to focus because you were just like, holy crap. Like somebody could literally shoot around straight through my <laughs> cockpit into my face. And like, so like your mind is going so wild. I can only imagine what the neurons looked like as this was happening. But, um, after, you know, after, I don't know how long I couldn't be able to quantify the time, but eventually it was like, okay, well, let's just get into what I've been trained and what my habits are to start, you know, prosecuting the target here. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the thing that I really remember about that is the importance of calm and like how insanely important it was for me to, um, really calm myself down because I mean, I was just like, uh, the adrenaline, you can't even describe the amount of adrenaline that was going through my body at that point. Now, what was interesting was after that first experience. And I remember like the thing I really took away from that first engagement at first experience was like, Whoa, my, my adrenaline was just overtaking my entire body and I couldn't even focus and and do a good job at what I needed to do. It was, it was really a bad, it was Mm -hmm. a bad engagement, you know, as far as like my ability to, to, to execute in a quick and timely manner. But as time went on and I had, you know, pretty much these kinetic engagements every single day throughout the whole summer in Kandahar, this was during the surge. I was there during the surge when they dropped the whole new brigade into Kandahar. So it was, it was wild. And, um, 
what I found is the second time I was much more calm. The third time I was much more calm. And then, you know, by the 10th or 20th or 30th time that I was, that I was doing these kinetic engagements, it started to, I, I knew as soon as the radio call came on, Hey, you're taking fire or Hey, we need you to, to shoot here or whatever the, the radio call was. My mind immediately started going to, all right, time to, to be calm and collective. And it almost was, it was, it was interesting because the first engagement was crazy, but by the 10th or 20th or 30th or whatever, it was actually to the point where I felt like I actually got uh, more calm when yep. it happened. And I started, cause I knew that that's the environment that I had to be in in order to do the job appropriately. And so when I, when I compare that to the markets and how I look at finance now, um, when things kind of go crazy and you see the, um, the, the 10% jump or the 10% drop or whatever, it's, it, I go back to kind of that experience and I say, okay, so let's not, let's not get emotional here. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. kind of, yeah. it's kind of the response because that's, that's really what was happening, you know, during that first engagement was you're very emotional and you're just, you can't think appropriately and applying that to the markets is an absolute uh, comparison and something that I learned by going through that is like, hey, I can't make a wise decision right now because there's too much emotional charge in my brain that yeah. uh, I've got to take a step back and, and go through this in a thoughtful manner. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I've, I've said so many times that, that one of the, the best things that ever happened to me in my career was to, to go through the 87 crash very early on in my career because completely different, but at the time, my, I was completely bamboozle. I had no idea what was going on. You know, the market gets 25% of it cut off in a day. I've, I've got no idea what's happening to me. And I talked to Carl Bass recently and, and he talked about the worst thing that ever happened to him was that his first ever short sale went to zero. He's like, you know, that, that, so that just reinforced the opposite. That reinforced bad habits that he's like, well, this is easy. It's, it's, so when you go through these, these situations and obviously you're talking about something life-threatening, we're talking about losing money, which is a, you know, completely different and, and largely irrelevant in the scheme of things. But those, those experiences that just give you the ability to call upon past situations where you've had to make choices or you've had to, you've had to think a certain way and try and rationalize stuff going on around you that you just really don't understand, but you haven't got time to kind of figure it out. It, it's, it's just, it just feels so important to be able to develop that skill. However, whether it's through experience or whether it's through, um, you know, trying to find exercise to test ways to kind of put you under pressure situations and, and learn how you react to it. Because until, um, to your point, I'm sure, until you, you, you go through all that training, until you're in your cockpit and the first round whistles past you, you have no idea how you're going to react. None. Yeah. And, and it was, was crazy is there was no amount of preparation that I could have ever done to prepare myself for what that was going to feel like. Yeah. And it was the wildest feeling because I just remember how... It was, it was like somebody had done a lobotomy on me and like literally removed my brain and put it over there on the shelf. And like, I was without a brain, like looking at my brain over there, like, <laughs> what the hell do I do? You know? And it was, it, it took a couple, you know, I can't remember the time of, of how long it took, but eventually I kind of came around and, and then things calmed down inside of my mind. And I, then I was able to start doing what I was, what I was supposed to do. Now, did you, did you, I'm interested when you, when you came back from that first uh, kinetic engagement. Did you talk to, I guess, you know, the equivalent of a mentor, or a general, or a colonel, or someone higher up the command chain, and 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 talk about what had happened, how you'd felt, and and ask 
you know, how do I deal with this? Or were you left largely on your own to kind of figure it out? So the, the company that I was in charge of was probably one of the most battle tested companies in the entire U S army. I, I was flying with the 101st airborne division is where okay. I was a commander. And so the guys in my own company, uh, that were, you know, warrant officers, the pilots, some of these guys, this was their fifth rotation to Afghanistan right. and, and flying kinetic engagements every single day for the last, you know, for, for all five years that they had spent in Afghanistan. Um, you know, these guys were, uh, total, total meat eaters. I mean, these guys were, were beyond battle tested. So it was kind of an interesting dynamic because here I am as the company commander in charge of the company, but I'm the guy with probably the least amount of right. flying experience, uh, relative to the guys that I was in charge of. And so it was, it was amazing because these guys were so professional, so proficient, and so part of our, you know, after we're done with the mission, we come back and we back brief it. And so I would sit down with, you know, my standards uh, pilot and his name's Jimmy Morrow, uh, one of the best guys you could ever meet. And I mean, just so insanely proficient, it'd make your head spin. And, you know, I'm there watching the tape uh, with Jimmy and he's kind of going through it with me. And, um, you know, Jimmy's just pointing out all the errors, but he's also understanding because he knows what I had just experienced. And he, you know, he's had that same experience, his first kinetic engagement. And so, you know, he, he's kind of laughing at me a little bit and it's just like, you know, like, Hey man, you could have done this better. He's pointing out all that stuff. And that's part of why we're able to become very good at it is because of those procedures of going back and, and studying the tapes and, and trying to learn from each other. And it's, it's one of these environments where, you sit down and everybody in the room picks apart the mistakes and we are very, very nitpicky with each other uh, to make sure that we're the absolute best in the entire planet at doing it. Uh, you know, this idea of, of learning from mistakes, I think it's just so crucial. You know, if you want to get better at, at anything, you, you have to have the courage to look in the mirror, examine your mistakes. And I think that's a thread which, which is consistent right, right the way through every form of life. Yeah, so so after that after that um, exhilarating trip through your uh, first career as an uh, as an Apache attack helicopter squadron commander, we move on to the more sedate uh, environment of uh, markets. Well, perhaps not so sedate, but I'm fascinated, Preston, to, to to get a sense of how those those experiences helped you, and perhaps a moment when you were just an, just back to being a run of the mill investor, how you had to kind of recall back to your time in in the military. Well, so for me, the, the 2008 crisis was probably one of the biggest learning points I could ever talk about for uh, myself with respect to investing. And most of it's just because um, I thought I knew a lot more than what I knew. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that can, you know, attest to that. But I, I guess for me, when I look at the generation that's what, probably 32 years and younger, they've never really lived through um, one of these market downturns, or at least they didn't have any kind of money to invest yeah. to really experience what these things are like. And so all they know is that the stock market goes up and they think that they're most likely a lot smarter than what they are um, for, for certain people. And that was me back in 2008 is, um, you know, I had not a lot of money, but I had some money invested in the market back then enough that um, when, it, when it halved and went down by 50, 60%, yeah. um, it was a real wake up call to me and like, 
you know, because I had, even before the 2008 crisis, I had been studying Buffett. I felt like I really understood valuation, even though like, you know, and I, and, and right now I feel like I, I know a lot more than I knew then, but I, what I have now versus then is an appreciation for what I don't know. And that's a lot. Um, yeah. Because, you know, although we talk to all these great investors and we ask these questions to various people and they've helped educate us through all that process, I still feel like there's so much out there that I just have no clue about. And, um, you know, you, you kind of invest somewhat petrified because you have such an appreciation for how wrong you can be. So, so, so how, did you, how did you handle 08? Because, you know, I guess putting you back in that helicopter uh, cockpit – the 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 danger is clear. You've got your radars, you've got your spotters, you've got you you know where the danger's coming from. Um, you know, you might not understand the frequency of it or whatever, but but you kind of know what you're heading into. With with 2008, most people didn't have a clue what was happening. And so when it started happening, uh and and, and people forget it started happening in 07, and most people didn't really put two and two together, understand what was going on. How how did you react to that once you realized the the extent to which the damage was being done? So one of these, when these events happen, these big credit events, there's often, people often make two mistakes, okay, is, is my opinion. I think that the first mistake is that they're in the market or they're heavily exposed to the market when it's highly valued like that. And then I think the second mistake that people often make is then when it crashes, they get all emotional and then they sell the position at the very worst time. And so it's, it's like a double whammy and it happens in a very short amount of time. Um, and you really need to be doing the exact opposite. You should be almost, you know, you should be exposed very little at the top. I would say the exception to that is if you have a large amount of capital gains in a position, then maybe you just want to hold it and ride it out and uh, just chalk that up to part of the process of owning a business, you know. But yeah. a lot of people aren't in that position. A lot of people are taking new positions in the last year or two years, and their capital gains are pretty minimal. So they're just they're just basically asking for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so those mistakes, when I look back at what I did during the 2008 crisis, I was absolutely heavily exposed in equities and risk assets during the 2008, uh, you know, 2007 top. And then when the market crashed, I didn't make the second mistake where I sold. I just continued to hold it. And I, you know, saying I was calm is probably <laughs> a bad way to put it because I was looking at it and I was scared to death and I didn't know uh, necessarily how long it was going to take or if it was going to come back up. Because when you're in the deepest part of that, you're like, I'm never going to get that money back, you know? Yeah. And, but I did continue to hold the positions that I had. And then I, and this is another thing that I think I did all right was with the cash flow that I had coming in during the 2008, 2009 timeframe, when the market was down, I was buying. So, um, I wasn't selling positions. I was buying positions. And so I would say, I didn't make both of the mistakes, but I definitely made the first one with my exposure level. Um, and I think that that was a huge learning point for me. And, and, you know, to be honest with you on our show, we've been talking about how expensive the market's been since really we've been doing the show for the last, you know, three years at this point, um, because we've been at a Schiller PE of 27 to 30 since we've been doing the show. And so we've been talking about how expensive the market is and how you need to, you know, what's your exposure and this thing just keeps running and running and, and Grant, as you and I know, it's mostly because of the manipulation with the central banks that's, that's causing this, this drawn out credit cycle that's different than anything we've seen in the past as far as the duration of how long this thing could potentially run. 
And so maybe I'm making a little bit of a mistake there because I'm not accounting for how long this could stretch out. But at the end of the day, I guess for me, I'm looking at what what yield am I missing out on uh, by playing it more conservative and being defensive and not being heavily exposed at the top of the credit cycle. And the yield I'm missing out on, in my opinion, is around 3% tops um, for the, the yield that I'm missing into the long term. So that's something I'm fine with. Other people might not be fine with that. They might want to chase the top of this and and then they can kind of learn the, the method that works for them is <laughs> probably the, the yeah. best way I could say it. But uh, those are definitely learning experiences that all go back to the 2008 crisis and, and how I experienced that. Yeah, I, I listened to you. You talk about your experience uh, you know, as a helicopter pilot and I, I listened to you as a value investor. And, it, and it's funny, you know, both of those disciplines, they, they necessarily almost take away one of those mistakes because they, they teach you there's a time to play defense and a time to play offense. And there are times when you have to protect yourself and there are times when you have to go on the attack. And the beauty of having a value framework to me is you take away, it's a very subjective, um, sorry, it's a very objective thing. Value is value. And once you have your framework, the same as you have your training as a helicopter pilot, you have your value framework. And then you see those flags getting triggered and you see, you know, this is value here. It almost becomes that trained response is, okay, and that does enable you to buy in the depths of oh, you know, March, February, March of 09 when everybody else is, is, is selling everything. It, that discipline of saying, okay, I understand that if I buy things with these valuations, I will make money over the cycle. And that discipline to step in when you have to, even though everything is screaming, don't do this, it's, it's a very difficult skill to learn. But to me, it's absolutely invaluable. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a correlation there. And, um, you know, that calm that I was talking about in the first segment was really kind of maybe what was driving me in the 2008 time for really 2009 when it really got ugly. Uh, the beginning of the summer of 2009, I remember it just being, you know, just horrendous and yeah. um, just, you know, reinforcing the ideas. Hey, what goes up must come down and what goes down must come up. Uh, that's how these cycles work. And so that that understanding, that simplicity and just trying to uh, remain vigilant and calm during those times is what really helped me not make the second mistake during the 2008 crisis. Yeah, fantastic lessons. Preston, that, that, that was awesome. Now, I mean, I'm going to shift tone now. We can, we can get away from this, but and instead of a helicopter, I'm going to put you in a rocket ship. So, <laughs> so I, I, you've, you've been to Afghanistan, you're now going to Mars. I'm going to stick you on Elon's rocket. I'm going to send you up to, uh, up to Mars and I'm, I'm going to allow you to take a few things with you. Um, but I'm going to be I'm going to be pretty picky about this. Elon hasn't he hasn't defaulted yet? Not yet, not yet. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll hopefully we'll he doesn't default while you're up there. That would be the worst. That would be the worst case. So I'm going to allow you to take one book, uh, one CD, one uh, movie on DVD. Um, I'm going to allow you to take one piece of technology, and I'm going to get someone to needlepoint a nice quote for you that you can take and frame and hang up when you get up there. So. Let's start with uh, let's start with the book, I, and, and I, I apologize in advance for this because if someone made me choose one of any of these things, it would take me like six weeks to to go through the list. But I'm going to put you on the spot. So, what's what's the book you're taking with you? The book I'm taking with me. Okay, this one's a strange one, and this is definitely something that I've never talked about on our podcast, and it might take people by surprise because they're probably going to think I'm going to say some investing book, but it's definitely not it. Um, the book that I think had probably one of the most profound impacts on me as a person is this book called Life After Life 
and it's by Dr. Raymond Moody. Um, there's just if if people are listening to this and they're researching the book, there's other books out there called Life After Life. So make sure that you, if if you're looking to buy this book, the one by Dr. Raymond Moody is the one that I'm referencing. Do not take the wrong one of these to Mars with you. That would really suck. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think the other one's uh, you know a fiction book, but. Uh, this book was really profound for me, and I read this after um, coming back from Afghanistan, and it was something that I that really had a huge impact and like a turning point in the way that I viewed the world and kind of my interactions with other people. And what the book's about is uh, this this doctor, his name's Doctor Moody. He interviewed 100 people that had near death experiences, and um, you know, so this is like I said, this is kind of a strange book. And what he did is he, after interviewing a hundred people with near-death experiences, he found the common thread amongst the stories. He, he tells the stories in the book, which are just fascinating stories. And then he, he ties the common thread between all the stories and the things that he, that he took away from interviewing all these people. And, um, you know, whether you believe this stuff or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, whether you believe the stories that people were telling in the book, I don't think that that's really the, the important part. The important part was what he captured, the common threads of what these people said that they took away from that experience that mm-hmm. I found just insanely valuable. And there was, there was three main points that people took away from the, this book, uh, the common threads that he took away from interviewing these people. The first one that he talks about that everyone had a sense of after going through a near-death expense, experience was this idea that we're all connected. Uh, that, you know, I'm connected to you in some way and you're connected, but everybody in the world is connected. And what he talks about is this idea that because of this connectivity, you're almost, um, what you do to other people and what you put out there, uh, specifically with, with respect to it, your intentions is what's actually returned to you. That, that intention that you put out there in the world is actually a return to you. And so the people and the things that you interact with in the world are actually a mirror into your own self and your own you know, being. And that idea had such a profound impact on me um, because when you think of it, you're, it's almost like you're going around throwing boomerangs all day uh, right. and with, with like int- intentions attached to them. So like, I can go to a doctor's office and steal medicine with the intention to save my wife because she's ill, or I can go to the doctor's office to steal medicine in order to sell it and make a profit. Those are two, the same act, but two different intentions. And, um, when you think about what's my intention of every single action that you're doing all day long, if those intentions are, are bad intentions or ill-conceived contentions that are, have a negative connotation to them. That's what's going to be returned to you through this system and this network of people that, that you're around. The, the, the thing that's hard for people to understand is that the, the way, the, for me, the way that the universe works is that time is not associated with the return of the intention. And so you might do something, you might put something out there, but that, that intention might not return to you for 10 years. Sometimes you see the intention literally return in like two seconds, like these videos of people that, that kick something and then they fall down and right. themselves. You yeah. know what I mean? Like the, the intention was returned like immediately. But I think that that's what confuses everyone in the world is the, this idea that um, they think that they can do anything and that sometimes it comes back to them, sometimes it doesn't because of this time illusion that occurs and they don't attribute it to what maybe they did in their past or something that they had put out into the 
you know, it goes back to like basic physics, you know, anything that, sure. that you put out there has a returning reaction to it. And I think we see that with market cycles and everything else that we look at. Um, sorry to go on about this book for so long, but there, there was another two really important points in this book that I want to talk about. The other point was this idea of love being so dominant and such an important force that when you have this pure intention and this pure love for other people, you're going to see how much easier things are going to start returning to you and uh, have a positive impact in your life. And then the third thing was the importance of education. And these people that had these near-death experiences came back with this understanding that it was so important for them to study and learn as much as they possibly could. Um, that 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 was such a overwhelming response that everybody that he interviewed had that same thing. Like I've got to learn as much as possible. I've got to study. And so after I read that in this book, I mean, I went on a rampage of just trying to read at all times. Anytime I have a lull in my day, I probably have earbuds in, I'm listening to a book right. or I'm reading something if I'm not spending time with my family. Fantastic. Well, you know, I have, I have a stack of books, literally, that's like three feet higher next to my bed. And now I've got two more. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, <laughs> I've got this one and Living with a Seal. And then I'm going to go, and, as soon as I hang up the phone from you, I'm going to go and order both those on Amazon. Well, that's, uh, that, did, that took me by surprise, but what, what a fascinating book. Now we move on to, this, was, this is the hardest of mine. This is the CD. Now, if I had to take one piece of music up with me, man, I don't know. I, I think maybe I'd, I'd skip the flight to Mars, but I'm not going to give you that luxury. So, so what, what CD are you taking with you? This one was easy. This, this one took me one second to decide. Really? Yeah. I would take Journey's Greatest Hits. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm a big Journey fan. And, you know, I really like the new lead singer there that they, that they pulled out of the Philippines. He's phenomenal. Now, did, did you hear this story about how that came about? That, yeah, that, it's, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable story. And, and we won't go into it now, but anyone listening to this, can, if you Google that, it's up there. The, the whole story. I think ABC or 60 Minutes did a segment on it. It's, it's just an, it's an astounding story. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Rockstar. But I have Mark Wahlberg and yeah, Jeff Mark, Aniston, right? Yeah, Mark Wahlberg's that. in that movie. And, and whenever I think of that movie and I, and I think of Journey, like that's literally what happened to this guy <laughs> right. from the Philippines. Exactly right. It's an it's an insane story. All right. Well, I, I'm I'm happy and disappointed that you found that so easy. Let's see if we can stump you with the movie. What, which movie are you taking up with you? You know, this was now. This one was hard for me because I'm not to be, to be honest with you. I'm not a big movie person. I don't. I haven't really seen too many movies in my life. Um, I, I'm more of a book person. But uh, one book, or I'm sorry, one movie that I can say that was uh, I felt really inspirational was a was a movie called Remember the Titans. I'm sure most people yeah, have yeah, seen yeah. this. Great movie. Um, I just really like this movie. I like the message of this movie. I think that it relates not just to uh, you know race struggles that we have in the U.S., but just really struggles in general and like how everyone in the world is different, and we've got to learn to come together and work together and treat each other with respect and remove the ego and just get along. You know, that's why I, re I really like that movie. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a great choice. Uh, what have we got left? We've got a, a piece of technology. We'll, we'll see. I, I think I know where everyone's going to go with this, but maybe you've surprised me an awful lot in the last hour. So let's see if you can surprise me with this one. You know, um, I think a lot of people might say their phone or like an iPad or something, but for me, it'd be a laptop because, uh, I, 
I, I look at a computer as being something that you can consume or something that you can create. And I can't really create too much with an iPad and a smartphone. I can really kind of only consume. So for me, the laptop would be really important because I can kind of do both ways. I can kind of consume and I can also create content and put it out there. All right. All right. Now the last one, uh, and this, this is uh, perhaps my favorite one is, is the inspirational quote that I'm going to get nicely needle pointed for you and framed beautifully. So you can hang it up on the wall of whatever it is you end up living up in in Mars. Uh, is there a particular quote that, that you kind of either have around the house or it always resonates with you? So Raul was telling me that you were taking up needlepoint. He was telling me that a couple of <laughs> weeks ago. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, This is by Maya Angelou, and she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I find so much truth in that. Um, When I think back to people from like high school or wherever from years and years ago, and I think about uh, people that I like and people that I don't like, it's... I can't really say what they said to me or what they did or any of that stuff, but I definitely remember how they made me feel. And so this quote I think is really important for people to think about um, whenever they have just day-to-day interactions with anybody and think about how you're making other people feel whenever you say things or do things. Yeah, it is a great quote. I was, I was mouthing that quote along to James as you said it. It's, it's one of my favorite quotes too. It is, it's fantastic. Well, this has been it's just so much fun and, uh, just fascinating to, to get insights into, into two very, very different lights. But before we go, I, I really want to make sure that everyone listening gets a chance to find out more about the Investors Podcast, which is an absolute must-listen for me and should be for everybody out there now, uh, and, and your other work. How can people find you? Tell us all about everything you do because it's, it's great stuff. Yeah, so uh, the podcast, uh, you know, we kind of have like this conflicting branding thing going on with our podcast. <laughs> the name of it's the Investors Podcast, but if you search for it on iTunes, you're probably going to see it as We Study Billionaires. Um, and we'd love to have uh, some of the listeners from Real Vision to come over and listen to some of our stuff. Uh, you know, as the name says, we we just kind of study any, anything that billionaires do and uh, try to understand what makes them tick. Um, I also have a website called Buffett's Books, which was a, it's a completely free website. There's about 10 hours of video lessons in there that literally are 100% free. You don't have to pay for anything. If you're trying to understand how Warren Buffett invests, I take a person from not knowing anything up to doing their own discount cash flows with free calculators on the website. Um, I try to point as many people there because it's, it's just completely free. And I think it'll help people a lot with trying to understand how he invests. Um, and then I'm on Twitter. If you guys want to hit me up, Preston Pish on Twitter. Fantastic. Preston, listen, I can't thank you enough for taking so much time to sit and talk to us today. I, every time I get a chance to chat with you, I enjoy it. And this is, uh, this has raised the bar yet again. So you've got some work to do next time we talk, my friend. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate it, Grant. Such a pleasure and, uh, honored to be with Real Vision. All right. Well, now it's time to return to Things I Got Wrong, which was uh, our most popular segment from our first season. Now, in this, we find someone uh, with plenty of experience in the markets and get them to sit down and do what people do far too infrequently, and that's discuss mistakes they've made. Uh, And by talking about those mistakes and picking out the lessons that people have learned, hopefully uh, we can save some people listening from making the same mistakes themselves. And this week, I am delighted to be joined by a good friend of mine from London, Tim Price, for Price Value Partners. He's also the author of a great book called Investing Through the Looking Glass. So, Tim, thanks for being a part of this. My pleasure. Well, uh, we were chatting off air, and I, and I did say to you that when, when trying to think of someone I knew that would have got something wrong, your name jumped straight to <laughs> mind. Um, 
but not not so much for the fact that you've got something wrong, but for the fact that I know you'll be more than open to talking about it. So um, so so let's go back to that fateful day and tell us what happened. Okay, so we had 2008, and you know we did tolerably well. We didn't lose too much money in 2008 for clients as a whole. Uh, because we were very diversified and think pretty much most of what we earned, what, what we owned then for clients made sense. So I'm not going to beat myself up over, if you like, sort of the, the bigger picture of asset allocation. You know, high quality bonds worked, value equity didn't lose anything like the amount of money that the broad markets did, and certainly not the growthiest type. Um, but the, but the, 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 macro, the global macro exposure was painful, and it was doubly painful because we were, with the benefit of hindsight, in the wrong structures for that for that market. And gold, of course, worked nicely. So if we if we roll the clock forward by 2011, 2010, 2011, we, we've always been invested in gold. And the reason we've been invested, and I say invested, not in a trading or speculating. And the reason we've been invested in gold is for anyone that sort of knows us and knows our price, probably fairly self-explanatory. In other words, I, as a former bond guy, I tend to link everything, all of the world's financial ills, ultimately back to the, the oversupply of debt, that the world is drowning in debt, and ultimately that piper has to be paid. So the, the, the question then is, OK, if you accept the thesis there's far too much debt in the world, it's clogging up the arteries of commerce and finance and the, the global economy, how does that debt pile get serviced? How, how does the debt predicament get handled or resolved? Well, I think there's only three answers. There's only three options. Option one is that governments engineer enough economic growth to service the debt. And I'd argue that in somewhere like the Eurozone, that's now perhaps impossible. I think the Eurozone is, is actually a, a approaching a depression. But, you know, to discuss. The second option is that you default on it. Or if you want to be more charitable, there's some kind of debt jubilee or, or restructuring. If you were to have any meaningful debt jubilee, to use the polite term, that would instantaneously bankrupt the global banking and pension fund industries, the very people that the authorities have moved heaven and earth to try and support for the last 10 years. So that doesn't make any sense. The third option, therefore, is the one I think that's ultimately the one that's most politically expedient and is also the one that happens to be the one that every heavily indebted government throughout all history has resorted, namely inflated away, inflationism, an explicit policy of state-sanctioned inflationism. So with that, if you like, as the sort of the overarching, bigger picture, long-term thesis, it, it for us, and that, that, that hasn't changed, by the way, um, you know, we, we would still maintain that view, we'd still maintain that the view that any investor should have a meaningful amount of their portfolio capital in the form of hard assets, not least precious metals, the monetary metals, gold and silver. So that's that's the base case. And that remains the case today. However, by 2011, 2012, because we were we, we felt that with the gold price rising, we were being vindicated in this approach. We perhaps got with the benefit of hindsight a little bit overconfident. So in addition to being exposed to pure bullion, we also had exposure to large cap gold miners. And for those clients who uh, who had a sufficiently high risk appetite, we even had exposure to small caps as well. And this gets to the second part, which is the, the real big thing point of the of the sort of the, this anecdote. We in by 2011, 2012, we'd started to invest in one specific fund. I won't I won't name it so that the guilty um, aren't identified, but we started to invest in one specific small cap 
uh, almost microcap gold fund, gold equity fund. And not, not only that, but it was a closed-ended fund into the bargain. And it was a closed-ended fund that never really got to critical mass. So by the time the gold price started to weaken uh, after 2012, and, and it clearly weakened quite dramatically, but it could not have been any worse an, an experience than than having your exposure, some of your exposure to precious metal in the form of a microcap, illiquid, closed-ended fund, because ultimately they got wound up and it was the most disastrous investment we've ever made. So, yeah, there, there's, there's a ton of uh, ton of stuff to talk about now. Obviously, the, 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 the idea of owning gold is not unfamiliar to me, let's put it that way. Um, but uh, for, the, for the people out there listening to this that, that do that themselves... How has that changed the way that you invest in precious metals? Um, well, it's it's actually it's actually refined the way we think about ec- particularly equity market investing across the piece. So um, it, it certainly led us to be to, to put even more focus on on keeping things simple. So the keeping things simple approach is to use bullion uh, through a, a cost effective medium. Um, either either pure bullion or, or some you know fund that invests in um, allocated gold inexpensively. Um, it's also led us to think a little bit more carefully and defensively about bluntly, rather than just just buying into an approach, buying into a thesis, that then also to have the discipline only ever to to continually circle back to bottom up valuation, rather than just buying into a, a long term thesis that you think is bulletproof. So in terms of equity investing. We now, even if we think it's a sector that's, that's a sector or a company that's going to do amazingly well, which doesn't tend to be the case for us because we don't try and take sort of big picture top down calls. But even if we couldn't be more excited by the prospects of a business, we now have the we, we, we try and have the try and maintain the discipline only ever to buy the shares of that business when it stacks up from a sort of Benjamin Graham style valuation basis. In other words, you know, I quite like old fashioned metrics like price to book and P.E., uh, and my colleague Killian, um, who's co-manager of the, the the business and the fund that that we run, uh, he'll, he he tends to focus on the enterprise value to cash from operations. Why? Because cash flow in particular you can't fake in the same way that you can fake revenues uh, or earnings. So uh, the 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 good aspect of this of that otherwise very painful uh, experience was that it, it forced us to go back to first principles and to say, look. The, the, the objective here fundamentally is not to lose money, no, no matter what we think about a company's um, uh, potential. We we have to have the discipline never ever to overpay. Um, so in other words, if if I talk about it in PE terms or price to book terms, which is quite crude metrics, I accept, we'll never typically try and pay more than you know a double digit mid percentage teen uh, PE. And we'll never we'll never pay more than a price to book of about one and a half times, uh, whatever the situation, because we know there will be occasions, even for the best companies, when you can pick them up at book value or cheaper even than that in extremis. So it was it, the, 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 the pain of the sort of the gold microcap trade did teach us and reinforce the lesson of no matter how, how confident you are about a, a proposition, never, ever overpay, because that way, at least you can you can uh, you can minimize the risk of loss. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to date you, uh, so I'm going to let you do that. But you, you've been around in these markets a long time, and, and I've, I always find it interesting how many experienced professionals learn a lot of their lessons in 08. You know, you, you can be doing this for a long, long time, and then suddenly something comes out the blue. And it, it's been almost 
too easy to shrug 08 off for a lot of people because it kind of happened and it's because of the response and the way markets have reacted once they bottomed out in March of 09. A lot of people have just kind of forgotten about it because we've, we've had almost a whole generation of people in the industry now who've, who've haven't been, who didn't see 08, who, who joined the market after that and have just seen rising markets. So it's fascinating. I think, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's right. I think the even scarier thing, I mean, the, 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 the problem, I, I guess, is that I, I, one tries not to put too much emphasis on one specific situation because the, the 08 experience was clearly very extreme. Um, so, but but one tries not to be continually biased, sort of looking over one shoulder at what happened then, because you know the, the world has completely changed since then. So whatever form the next crisis, and clearly there will be a next crisis, whatever form that takes, it's unlikely to go down the same way that it did uh, nine years ago. But the thing I think that's even scarier is, I mean, forget the fact that there may be quite a lot of people that, that never experienced 08. I think the much bigger problem is that there is now probably nobody alive in a dealing room that's ever seen a rising interest rate cycle. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I've, I've spoken to numerous people about that. It's, I think that that will become a huge problem. So just, I just want to go back to one more thing before, before I let you go. This idea that you spoke about, the danger of buying into an idea. Um, when, you, when you look at the landscape today and you look at uh, the rise of ETFs and passive investing, how do you square those two seemingly contrasting ideals away with each other? It's a good question. I, I, I'm probably going to sound a bit jaundiced because as an active manager, I wholly accept that it's like, you know, I do have a dog in this fight. Yeah. Um, but notwithstanding that, I, I, I have to come to the conclusion that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting motives to other people's behavior because we, we, although we use ETFs, we'll use ETFs in the most efficient markets. It doesn't make any sense to us to use ETFs in the least efficient markets, and amongst which would be, you know, sectors of the stock market. Um, what? So, with, with the caveat that I'm, I'm, I'm attributing motives to other people, the the concern I would have is that I suspect investors, many ETF investors, are guilty of being penny wise and pound foolish. They are seeing low cost as in the, the, the cost of owning a, um, an ETF vehicle, a passive fund, and treating that as, as, as consistent with low price when they're completely, completely the opposite thing. So because it's, because it's cheap and easy to get into a market, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's the market you want to be in. So I, I can see no rationale for sort of uh, almost a, get what I would describe as a gathering flood into particularly global stocks and in particular you know, parts of the tech market and the fangs, the so-called fangs, um, in getting in simply because you can own, you can own them uh, in, a, in a cheap vehicle because their underlying valuations are off the charts. Yeah. So I, th- I think that, that's the real risk. Now, it may be that actually a lot of the ETF flows are actually from institutions so that they're actually, look, I, I use the word professional advisedly, but they're professional traders doing it and they're, they're big enough to look after themselves. But I, I don't know. I suspect there's, it goes much further than that. I suspect there's all shades of institutional um, buyers of these things and all shades of retail investor buyers. The thing, I don't think this has been tested in a downturn though, because I don't, I suspect the ETF market was in, inconsequentially smaller back in 08. So when you had the entire market hitting an air pocket and you know, gapping down by 10, 20%, we haven't seen the behavior of ETFs in, in, in that kind of a market environment. My suspicion would be, and there's some very interesting 
research I think that Ken Fisher did on this topic. If you look at the turnover uh, of funds, perversely, um, the the guys who buy higher cost active funds, um, they leave well. They tend to leave well alone. It's because they're aware they've paid an entry price, and that's if you like they've paid an entry tax, and as a result, they don't want to sell out too quickly. The guys who bought low-cost passives haven't paid any great premium. And as a result, they, they have a tendency to overtrade this stuff. So I suspect that the I – mean, again, it's, it's, it's a presumption – but I suspect that the average ETF investor is on a real hair trigger. We don't know how they're going to behave when the market suddenly, suddenly finally gaps down by a meaningful amount. But I think it could be just as disastrous as so-called portfolio insurance was in 1987. Yeah, that, when the that, selling just when the selling just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I, I had this a long conversation with Steve Bregman about this exact thing and this this idea that this whole industry has built uh, and grown during a period of one way markets is is great, um, but it, it does remain to be seen what happens when the momentum that's carried everything higher turns the other way. And, and you know, you and I have been around long enough and and to the point of this little segment, we've made enough mistakes to know that. That will always happen. Tim, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and, uh, and sharing that story with us, and hopefully everybody got something out of it. Great stuff. Thank you. All right. Well, that concludes a remarkable episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we close, uh, our usual legal disclaimer, anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we will be back with uh, our usual Things I Got Wrong segment and a very special guest, Dr. Harold Malmgren, is going to join us. Uh, and We're going to sit and talk about his experiences in the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. With everything going on on the Korean Peninsula, uh, this is a conversation you are not going to want to miss, I promise you. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. Review, schmoo. I, you know, I still can't figure this thing it's out. It's a love-hate relationship with you, isn't it? Yeah. You love reading them, but you don't know what they do. No, I don't read them. I can't read them. You, know, you never know. I'm too fragile. I'm way too fragile. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes, please follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision, and you will also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn if you are so inclined. Just search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And if you want slightly less insightful tweets, just follow me at AIFJames. They're where you will find beautiful silence. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. Thank you so much for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com